0: This episode, like Hamza Yusuf's leadership speech, is dominated still by the situation in Israel and Gaza and looks at the way that he managed to deal with that with great compassion in a speech that clearly has roused delegates and certainly worked for both of us on the podcast. We analyse the rest of the speech, uh, look at the uh, other issues that are being thrown the way, of uh, the new leader, Lisa Cameron, the constant uh, talk of rebellion in the ranks, and wonder whether that has actually abated. We have a quick chat with Tommy Shepherd, whose amendment largely forms the basis now of the new policy for the general election and strategy. Those are the headlines, now for the podcast.
1: Hi, James, and welcome to this week's Leslie Reddick podcast. Uh, we're recording slightly later than normal, and we always say we're never going to do this, but it's not quite darkness yet, so it's it's, it's not been too bad. Uh, and uh, we uh, decided to hang on until after Ronja Yusuf's speech at the SNP annual conference. And I think both of us can absolutely agree that it was very well worth the wait. Uh, for for this speech. And I think we've got to begin with where Hamza Youssef began himself, most movingly, um, which is with what is currently unfolding in Gaza, um, because it just seems to be going from Uh, This is this. I always sound so trite when I talk about this. It's talking cliches. It's going from bad to worse. And I actually had to switch off the news today. Uh, I couldn't bear to actually watch the footage that has been put. uh, The Israeli government has put out about what happened to the families on the kibbutz and the young people. And I couldn't bear to watch the scenes in Gaza of people being dug out of buildings and hospitals. I just said, no, I can't do it. I have to go back to the written word because that's all I can cope with.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yes. Absolutely, actually. I I mean, you you almost now are stuck for what you can say, and that's actually to pay enormous tribute to Hamza Yusuf for nonetheless in the midst of where anybody normally now can hardly find anything to say um, except except that, you know, there has to be, well, just what he said, there has to be a humanitarian corridor. Um, But he went further. There has to be a resettlement program for the Palestinians who want to leave. And quite obviously, a lot of people are worried that if they leave, they'll never be able to come back as per previous experiences like this. And he actually said Scotland will be first in the UK to offer homes to anyone from Palestine who has to resettle. Um, he also called for um, a medical evacuation of of citizens in Gaza who are in hospital and said, basically, our ho- our hospitals in Scotland will treat them. Now, yeah. I mean, I'm welling up all over again because, <clears throat> I mean, all all you can do. And of course, you know, without putting too much constant emphasis on this, I mean, clearly Hamza Youssef is sort of in the middle of this uh, in a very personal way with his in-laws. And he mentioned briefly his brother-in-law, who is a surgeon in the hospital. I mean, you don't get more in a sort of way human and humanitarian credentials to be able to say something and be heard than Hamza Youssef has because of those familial links. I mean, he really knows what he's talking about. But, you know, when he when he was speaking about the way that he talked about this was so powerful. And I really hope anyone listening would take the time to listen to the entire speech because I I just tweeted that this is the best speech, leader speech I have ever heard. And I would stand by that for me anyway, it is. Um, I did actually say it's almost enough to make me want to join the SNP, though not quite, you know, so it's uh, (laughs) still me here, right? (laughs) But how he phrased that was that he felt that Scotland and the SNP and all the different communities of Scotland particularly were like a a large family and community. And he talked about having sort of, you know, spent time with people in that community, been to synagogues, been to uh, mosques, danced with people, spoken with people. I mean, and you can believe it actually uh, of him so that, again, that allows what he then goes on to say to be taken really, you know, with a lot of weight, and I I mean, jeez, you're almost past hoping that the UK media will actually see that in him they have someone to occupy a space that does not exist within the Westminster parties in terms of a kind of compassionate, he used that word, compassionate, that's it. And there was a point, um, I don't know if I can even say it actually, when he's talking about uh, Suella Braverman Yes. And uh, the Home Secretary and con- utterly condemning, you know, her talk about swarms of you know, migrants and all the rest of it. And he actually said at one point, he said, uh, when, when, we, uh, when we secure our independence, the hostile environment will be gone for good. Yeah. And I thought, well, wow. I mean, that was one of about I couldn't count easily, but about seven standing ovations in it. And people might think, well, yeah, so what? But I mean that again, you you watch that speech that is such a well crafted point to have reached, because the whole speech was essentially um, showing, not telling the theme, which is we're not talking about how we're getting to independence. We're going to talk about what it means, you know, what. What, what what could be achieved with independence. And bit by bit, he was actually showing you exactly what could be achieved and the weight that was put. Uh, and it clearly chimed with everyone in the room and having been there in that room, a very tiny minority of people in that room are from ethnic minorities. So that's a largely white audience that were completely with him and within that party are totally with the idea of solidarity with minorities in Scotland uh, so that putting that front and foremost right at the heart of all of this is a kind of a version of the idea and a, and, a, and a kind of projection of leadership that I must say I feel is giving a lot of the right priorities here and I think some people have felt otherwise um, in, in the very recent past. I have to say I went to last year's conference in Aberdeen and please Please SNP, just forget Aberdeen now as a venue. I'm not trying to be nasty to Aberdeen, but I think almost everyone was saying that it's you know there's it's a lot courier <laughs> you know you can courier in more easily and the venues are in the middle of town in Inverness or Perth just you know that would be make it a much much more hospitable sort of conference. But last year's one, I didn't even last a day mm-hmm. and it was just it felt tired it felt, you know, like it had run out of steam. Actually, that day I was there, Nicola Sturgeon wasn't hadn't even arrived yet. Um, I mean I saw Hamza, Hamza's been here since the start. You know, he 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 spoke at the beginning. He spoke obviously the big independence vote was at the beginning. But last year just felt like people that had run out of road completely. And really, um it's it's an astonishing achievement to have created a change of, of heart in the room, which although I'm not there now, you can see has happened actually by the the kind of response he's got.
1: Yeah, because that's that was the thing I was I was going to ask you, Liz, that you you're having been there, it was there a sense of a of a revival, a greater optimism, a sense of solidarity, because you were there for the for the debate concerning the independent strategy, which of course could, I mean, it was an interesting one, I read the, the, the Guardian talking about uh, Hamza Yusuf staving off a potential rebellion uh, from, and I thought, this doesn't sound like a rebellion that he's staving off. This sounds like a healthy set of debates within a, a party that, goodness gracious, might might be a return to the fact that we've actually been membership led where different ideas are allowed to be expressed and debated, but debated uh, in a fraternal manner. Or, uh, that's the sense that I got from it was that the reality.
0: Yes. Uh, and, and that's, you know, be, being in the room, that's absolutely where it, it felt like it was at. I mean, I, who knows whether this was just a happy coincidence or, or what? But, I mean, Hamza Yusuf's original uh, framing of his independence motion looked a bit kind of wishy-washy to folk. But he stood up at the start and basically accepted, I've got a thing here, I think four or five of the amendments. And then he thought, see, it's funny this, because we also showed the Denmark film for the first time there. And in one of the interviews with one of the ministers in Denmark, Um, He was actually saying that the way a proportional parliament works is that the more people you get in the tent, the better it is as a decision. So that he said, you know, although we, my party currently, you know, has a a majority, uh, we don't use it. Uh, We try to pull people in because that every time you get cooperation, um, you, you get a stronger deal, basically. And I'm looking at that. Of course, I've had nothing but Denmark in my for ages because we've been editing the film. And I'm looking at this. He's got his motion and then he accepts everybody's amendments practically. I'll come to that in a point in a minute. But, you know, they, 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 that allows everybody else to have, again, I'm still thinking <clears throat> Danish, but uh, one of the, the best speakers, uh, Soren Hermansen from that little island of Samso, um the people who are energy self-sufficient, Talks about the need for mental ownership, uh, by which he means that uh, people have to really feel that they are are owning, co-owning a project before it means anything to them. And here's the mental ownership, because you know now this is not just the leadership has managed to kind of batter everyone out of the head, intimidate, buy whatever the way it is leaders normally manage to get their way. And come up with a fully formed, you don't touch it, no, you know, there's nobody gets their hands on it but me sort of uh, motion, which basically speaks to the power of one individual. Uh, the power of this individual, I think, is, is uh, judged very differently by the ability to get people who previously had been a bit unhappy with them in various ways to actually accept their amendments and get them essentially on side. I mean, it's... If that was an accident, then that's a happy accident and may he have many more. If it was by design, then that's blooming crafty and mm-hmm. and, and sort of displays a lot of emotional intelligence quite apart from anything else. Now, you know, obviously the, what was not chosen and sitting in the audience, I've got to say, um, I was kind of going both ways with every speech and they yeah. were brilliant <laughs> I was going this way, that way, this way, that way. And, you know, people towards the end of it, it was very much reminded me of the NATO debate in 2012. Mm -hmm. People weren't using notes. They were speaking from the heart. Um, You know, they weren't being nasty to one another, but they were just it was a very strong. You know, this is not nitpicking sort of stuff that's going on here. And a very powerful point was made by Chris Hanlon and by uh, Pete Wishart. That, you know, if the people of Scotland are sovereign, then there has to be a point where there is a sovereign vote of everybody to be able to trigger independence. What I think really swung the day, actually, was Tommy Shepherd, who um, I've got to say, Tommy was I've known Tommy for a very long time. You know, he was General Secretary of the Labour Party in Scotland. He obviously comes from NI, like what I do. Um Tommy absolutely came up and thundered uh, through his his speech and basically, I think, swung the room um, behind his uh, position, which is, I suppose, that you totally do need a vote of the, the people, the sovereign people of Scotland, but you might not want to make it this general election for a whole series of reasons um, in the way that William Wallace succeeded by choosing his battlegrounds you wouldn't choose this one to have that all important vote. Anyway, if I had had my head screwed on at the time, I would have simply got my phone on to record and and just spoken to Tommy as I was speaking to him after the after the uh, the vote. But head wasn't screwed on. So we did this later uh, and we've just recorded this with him where I'm seeing now a lot of, oh, you know, what is the actual uh, strategy? It's all out of the place. And some people are saying there is a referendum in it. Some people are saying it's not. So it seemed easier just to get it from the horse's mouth. And here is that very Tommy Shepherd mouth. So, Tommy, um, can you just clarify for everybody what the independent strategy currently is? Uh, And is there a referendum in it at the next general election?
2: So
3: the strategy is that we're going to seek a mandate at the next general election to pursue Scotland's journey to independence. And if we win that election, we will demand that the UK government begin negotiations on how that can happen. Uh, There are a number of things that could happen as a result of those negotiations. They could transfer the powers to Scotland to consult people here on how they're governed. Uh, and that's also included in the, in the motion of something we'd like, or they may prefer to go a Section 30 route or they may have some other proposal to make. But if we win the election, we will pursue that. And in order to win the election, we are going to refocus the debate and the arguments of independence very much on the economic crisis facing the Scottish households at the minute, and on the existential crisis facing the world in terms of climate and energy And actually demonstrate how those practical powers that come with being an independent country can be used to make things better for people. And in order to demonstrate the immediacy of this, while the constitutional process is continuing and that argument is continuing, we will demand from an an incoming UK administration emergency powers to the Scottish Parliament in order to fast track some of these actions uh, in terms of the cost of living crisis on the economic and Energy regulation and, and, and other fronts, as as illustrated in the motion that was passed. And if all of that doesn't, if we are met with intransigence and contempt as we have been from the Tories by a new UK administration, then uh, having exhausted every opportunity, we will consider using the 2026 Holyrood election, which is our election about the government of Scotland, falls on our terms. We will consider repurposing that as a democratic event to allow people to vote yes or no on becoming independent.
0: Right. And in the parlance that we kind of got to know, that would be a de facto referendum because the result would be seen as a referendum result.
2: Yeah,
3: I don't like the word de facto because I mean, I know I don't it, either. And I, I, and election's an election is an election. But we would seek to use that election to get a clear binary choice before before people. And because it's about the government of Scotland, because you're electing people to a Scottish parliament, then the opportunity presents itself much better to do that then. I hope that wouldn't be necessary. I hope that we would, that that common sense might break out from a new UK administration, despite what Keir Starmer is saying at the minute, and they would respect the Scottish electorate and they would wish to uh, enter into discussions with the Scottish government on this. Whether they do or not, in my view, is entirely dependent upon who wins the election, how many seats each party gets, and in particular, whether or not the SNP has a mandate to press this in Scotland. But for anybody who believes independence is 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 either a good thing or something they want to keep under consideration, they should vote SNP next, at next year's general election because if we lose that election, it goes off the table and the debate will be closed down.
0: And then finally, um, a lot of people felt that there would need to be at some point a refer- the, 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 the number of votes would need to matter because the plebiscite, the, the sovereignty of the Scottish people would have to be exercised to say, we want to have an independent country. Now, why is that inappropriate at the general election?
3: Because, it, I mean, a general election is a general election, a multi-party election, a first-past-the-post system. Uh, you know, it's a democratic event that is so far away from a binary choice in a referendum that it's very hard to repurpose it. And to be frank, we would spend the if, if we if we hadn't have changed tack this, we would have spent the entire election campaign having an argument about what the election actually was about. you know And despite the fact that we say, oh we we wanted this to be a, a de facto referendum, the rest of the world will say, well, actually that's not what it is to us and that's not what we're voting on. Uh, and so you know that that's the reality. But but the reason why uh, we've adopted this strategy is because it is important that we if we win the election I mean win the election on the normal terms that people win a first past the post election according to the rules that everybody else plays by we'll play by them too and if we win that election we will have a mandate to go forward and we cannot risk having a situation where we win the election by being the biggest party and getting the most votes but people tell us we've got no mandate no mandate to do anything so that's that's why we've got a strategy which takes us into this 24 election, but also now charts a route map forward from that. If, if you know, if the British government doesn't want to enter into democratic discussions following the, the renewed mandate that's given by Scottish people.
0: So, so that was Tommy. hope <laughs> mm. oh, that is crystal clear with people now. Um, I don't know what you make of that, Pat, because you were sitting and listening to him and to the debate. Yeah, well, it was it was
1: a funny kind of thing, because I actually started off, and I started off thinking to myself, well, let's have a majority of votes for all parties supporting Scottish independence. But then, again, that was exactly the same kind of thing. When it was framed within that that idea that, well, hang on a minute here, why are we actually operating those of us who believe in Scottish independence out with the framework of a first-past-the-post electoral system, where normally you have a mandate and I know there have been mandate after mandate after mandate for in, to, to engage in, 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 in an independence campaign and to gain independence. But in order to do that, why don't we operate within the framework of the system as it actually exists when a majority of seats? And at that point, leaving it open after the, the immediately open negotiations with the UK government, to give what we call democratic effect to Scotland becoming an independent country. The Constitutional Convention, very interesting. I'd like to see what Civic Scotland is in that. And also the other amendment that was accepted, which is the Tony Giuliano one that a new Scotland wide campaign, but added to that should be on the ballot paper, independence for Scotland or words to that effect. And page one, line one, as Humza said in his speech, vote snp for an independent scotland and with the potential after that if if it all breaks down I mean because we do have david Lamy who just came out and said very very directly uh, would you ever agree to an independence referendum for scotland we are a unionist party we believe in the union that's going to be their pitch in 2024 up here and people going to have to wise up to it but it's going to be a very straightforward pitch from the SNP what you are voting for is for independence for Scotland and you're giving us the mandate to go forward at this no ifs no buts that we're going to go for it and I'm, I'm kind of at the point as well Leslie I would be as long as there is a strategy that is agreed a strategy that, that does seem to make sense the one that has brought the SNP together as a party and i'm not a member of the snp but i do realize the significance of the snp to gaining scottish independence but one that can unite that party which appears to be behind it bring the party together after time of division and a party which has been wracked by division um and make it more collegiate and work forward and get a campaign going i'm all for it if if, if, yeah I'm going to go and say I'm all for it and people can pick holes in it if they want and it's a strategy that the SNP can get behind wholeheartedly and be enthusiastic about campaigning about I'm all for it.
0: Yeah. I yeah, totally. Um and I mean as I understand it though just to avoid any confusion I think the the object and of course, you know, this could just not not come to pass at all. But I mean, the, the way that people focus on this, do you know, every single party is going into an election with a strategy that may not come to pass. Yeah, that doesn't mean that everybody, you know, those parties just get basically almost laughed at. For, uh, you know, for the for the strategy that they're putting forward, you get laughed at and you get jeered at if there's no strategy. And once there is one, you get told it's impossible. (laughs) So, you know, that's what happens to everyone until they succeed. So the strategy, as I could see it, and as I think Tommy just outlined, is that you go into the uh, referendum saying that getting a majority of seats, not votes, Because that's manageable. And I think it's just looking at the reality of the likelihood that this election is just how much is Labour going to win by election. Mm -hmm. So this would not be your ideal moment to be testing anything further than that. But anyway, so that's part of his argument um, is you go into this one looking for um, a majority of seats, which in the eyes of the people who have voted for you, because it's in your manifesto and you have tattooed it out of your forehead several times, means that you then expect to have a conversation with the British government as if, you know, this new British government, this Labour government. And that's another point. This is the first time it's a Labour government, new kind of, you know, dance partners in this equation. If they really just want to be like the Tories and do the talk to the hand, that tells us all something about the kind of democracy we will have forever under devolution because it's never going to get better than that. So uh, you talk to the British government and you say, we have just been elected with a clear mandate to come to you to ask how we can test the the public's will about independence. We would, you know, you can give us a Section 30 order. You got any other ways that we can do it, but that will be to try to achieve a vote. So the vote would be the outcome of having the mandate to go to them Mm -hmm. and and basically then start negotiations on essentially getting a Section 30 and having another referendum. Um, Or if that doesn't work and it is, talk to the hand and these guys are just um, utterly betraying the social democratic heritage that they possess. Mm -hmm. Um, The next option is to treat the Holyrood election as this time. The meaningful vote, if you like. This one. And and I know everyone doesn't want to use the de facto referendum phrase because it actually just confuses everybody. This would be the one where the votes, you know, do count potentially. Mm -hmm. And that's because it's a Scottish election. It focuses on us and our future. It allows 16 and 17 year olds to vote. It allows European citizens to vote, all of whom and all other citizens to vote, rather, uh, who who bide in Scotland, that I think adds 400,000 people onto the electorate. That's a good thing. So that's the kind of vote that you might then want to have, which would be the one um, that you would mm-hmm. work up towards being in place of the referendum you should have got from a reasonable Labour government, but you have failed to do because of them. So, that's where i think this is heading as a strategy and to me that's good enough and actually although i hear people commentators saying oh well you know there's been every labor uh, snp manifesto has had a vote for us the snp is a vote for independence not in page you know line one page one yeah it hasn't um and i sense just from the you know the 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 punctuation of that whole speech there was all of it was about independence Um, It wasn't what we'd come to expect before, which was one line where people would basically go off their heads for one line. And then you were back to business. All of it was was basically uh, crafted towards independence. There was a point where Hamza Yousaf said when he said that, you know, it's basically really simple vote SNP for independence. And, you know, there was a huge standing ovation and he stood and smiled it's, it's it's interesting because it's almost like it's the pleasure he he feels himself by being able to finally sort of say these things big style you know um he's got that platform he's got the podium he's got the position and he can he can push out stuff now which you know i don't know how often he's been sitting in the background wishing he could have said you know things more emphatically and with more emotion but uh you know he's definitely managed there there was a whole series of things they worked through, different funds uh, and, and, mm-hmm. and announcements there was about about uh, finance, one of which <laughs> the one where he talks about going to the international bond markets yes. in our own right for capital. for The first time ever, there was an interesting little moment at the start of that where he actually stumbled. He'd. In the yeah. speech, he'd kind of got himself built up, uh, you know, and he was iterating one point as he was going on and building up to this one as the absolute biggie. And then he kind of stumbled a little bit and actually had the wit to stop instead of trying to kind of just cover it up um, or go on. He stopped and he said, you know, my God, this is such a big announcement I'm going to make. It's even making me stutter here, you know, so there's a yeah. wee bit of laugh, release of tension. And then he does it again properly this time. And that's, that's a tremendous skill of a speaker to do that. It's like what he was doing at the Dundee Convention when there was a problem in the room and he immediately decided he was the guy who could fix it and bounced off to sort it and came back. Nobody would have been able to focus on a word he was saying until that problem, that distraction was, yeah. you know, sorted. Um, and that's that takes tremendous kind of presence of mind, basically, and confidence to be able to do that. And I thought over the piece, really, that um, you know, Hamza Yusuf, I think, has really raised his credibility and his standing, but not by grandstanding. Yeah. And this is like a—he's a different guy. You know, he's—it's—he's it, he's not a kind of Nicola. Obviously, he's not a Nicola kind of leader. And then there was a moment actually where you know he paid tribute to Nicola Sturgeon mm-hmm. in the middle of it, um, and and did that. With, you know, apparent sincerity, smiled, clapped and sort of said, you know, Nicola, I can't remember quite the phrasing, but, you know, she was she was calm when it was ca- called for, and, yes. you know, um, and yeah. talking mostly about COVID. Uh, and I think that, too, you know, a lot of people were, were a bit kind of, what the, you know, with Nicola wandering into the middle of the conference just mm-hmm. when, you know, attention had finally begun to focus on him but I just kind of think, you know, it's it's quite possible that that is actually saying this is an end of an era properly for, for for someone with enormous status within the party. You can either do a goodbye and a cheerio properly or you can just pretend nothing happened. It's a little dirty secret. There has, mm-hmm. you know, we're not in a situation yet where there's been any charges laid. Um, and so what are you going to do? You know, um, it looks like he's chosen to be, you know, if you like, fairly magnanimous about it. And we're not having a repeat of a situation where Nicola's predecessor was literally removed from the SNP website. Yeah. So, again, if you're talking about sort of, I think if you're talking about a bit of emotional intelligence, what does it matter? Actually, I mean, it did gall a lot of people as much as other people were seen to be. I I didn't I didn't notice it happening, actually. I was somewhere else in a fringe meeting or something. But, um, you know, she was she was there and surrounded by current ministers in the Scottish government by an SNP press officer. And the press didn't suddenly miraculously appear at the foot of the Escalator in <laughs> in the conference center by by magic. You know there must have they were notified clearly by the SNP press office that she was there and she was coming down the stairs. But you know that fair enough. That's that's done. Um, maybe that now allows people to focus on the current leader uh, because that's who's all over everything that I'm seeing now here and and not the comments from Nicola, which in any case were only to support. The new change yeah. of direction yeah i mean it's like if i go back
1: to i mean it's sort of go back to what happened with Hamza youssef talking about gaza that identified the clear water between himself and the, theoretically the other social democratic leader in the uk which is Sir Keir Starmer. in that i always felt listening to starmer i genuinely and 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 how referred to it in the speech i don't know what Starmer's values and beliefs genuinely are. I think there's a constant attempt by him to represent him as something, to represent the Labour Party as something in order to triangulate purely for political gain and electoral gain. And it's the old Groucho Marx statement, uh, sincerity, sincerity, sincerity. And I don't think Keir Starmer could even fake sincerity. Mm. Whereas I get from Hamza Yusuf, I got from that, he's a good lad. Honestly, in that the fact that, that what he was, was talking about came came from the heart and came from a humanitarian perspective on what was actually going on. And that ability to reach out to the Jewish community, I thought, was, was, was immensely powerful. And I, I don't know. But I I don't get the impression that this is a a thought out strategy in terms of what must I do in order to appeal to people. I think there is a genuine humanity there that expresses itself through through throughout that speech. And again, the focus on values that he talked about and the choices you make come from your values. Yeah. And the values that are embedded nationally and internationally, both within the Scottish National Party as as a social democratic party and within the people of scotland and that is that that i thought that was immensely powerful the way he worked through that and again you could see and again we're going to step back a bit here and think about the strategy for the general election you can see the fact that i'm going to compare and contrast with the brutality of the Suella braverman captured ukipized conservative party and the labor party that is that is now support the rape clause. You know, yes. two two immense statements there.
0: And I mean, I, I was it. You know, every, everything seems to be going so fast now. Was it? But since we've last spoken, that Keir Starmer was on. I can't remember. If it was on LBC when he, you know, basically he basically said, you know, they whatever happens in Gaza is kind of yep. justified. Yes, oh,
1: well, that's since, since we spoke, that was the LBC interview where he, as an international human rights lawyer, should have known full well about collective punishment and should have known, as should, Emily Thornberry, to her utter disgrace, yep. again, I think it was on Newsnight, was floundering her way through this. And you could see her double thinking herself, you know, what what can I say? What can't I say here? When she knew, fine, that as the UN has said, they are teetering if not gone over the edge of collective punishment uh, of the the people of Gaza.
0: Well, in fact, what he said was um, the the, the LBC guy had sort of said, is a siege appropriate, cutting off power, cutting off water? And Starmer's reply was, I think Israel does have that right. Yeah. I mean, this is just it's its its quite unbelievable, actually. And you can see, even as he's doing it, it was Nick Ferrara he was speaking to that, mm. you know, he, he can you can see him beginning to realize how he's got himself into a complete corner. But it's just beyond horrific. And I see all sorts of commentators on demanding that he apologize for those comments. But I mean, having spoken to some people who are bigger le- legal, well, I'm no legal head at all, but who are legal heads at the Aberdeen conference. There's even, you know, in that uh it is war crimes are on mm-hmm. the menu here now. Um in in terms of uh collective punishment is a war crime. Uh you then look at whether Keir Starmer has actually inadvertently yep. encouraged a war crime. Yep. So, you know, it's just it's it's just a, just beyond utterly appalling. And again, just to give Hamza his due, you know, he just held that and without trying to score points, which he could have done, he could have been a lot, lot mm-hmm. harder against and got particularly to those points of challenge with Keir Starmer. I mean, he was he simply left it, and he's assuming that the audience brings to, you know, his speech what they already know. Um, you know, he said the closer that Starmer gets to Downing Street, the further he, he gets, uh, you know, from from any sort of um, principles. Yeah. That he ever had and gave the example actually of the rape clause and spelled out again for people, because the thing is that gets contracted too often and people go, I don't really know what that is, actually, which is that a woman has to be pro- has to prove she's been raped before she can get benefits for the third yeah. child. Um, yeah. So, you know, and, and just when, it, when you spell that out, you let it leave leave it there for a second. Yeah. Is that what this country has come to, you know? so all of that was tremendously powerful there was other things just to you know just to save everybody having to kind of swatch through it we'll probably not get through absolutely everything here but there was another sort of a surprising commitment actually about the arts and culture yes um, where he was saying basically they were going to double the investment in the arts and culture over five years so that would mean 100 billion quid more by the end of five years Now, I'm sure we're speaking immediately in the wake of this speech. So I'm sure you could have a little bit of a Google. And I know the arts community has been savagely cut, basically, you know, over the last couple of Mm -hmm. years. So you'd need to just check that that doesn't just bring you back to where we were. But even if it does um, only do that, and I would have still thought 100 million is, you know, but still by the end of five years, there'll be a lot of of debate about how that cash ought to be spent and whatever. Yes, still. It's obviously a priority that he's chosen to pull out in a speech like that and make a commitment to and and basically valorize, if you like, the the role that arts and culture has in our lives. And again, that one you know seemed to be ver- go down very well. And um, he talked about a new fund for women in a, it's caught up in domestic violence. It's going to be the fund to leave and yeah. it'll be given to five women's aid uh, groups it'll be 1000 quid each for women who will, which will enable them to leave without worrying too much about the consequences financially of that in, in the immediate wake of that decision. Um, And he said, at, by the end of it, he said, you know, women who are facing violence always know we stand with you. Now there was huge applause in the room there. And I would have thought not just because quite obviously who wouldn't stand with women in this situation,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but because he was talking about women. Yes. Now, there's been a lot of very clever or just wise um, stuff going on behind the scenes, methinks. to have got, for example, Joanna Cherry's amendment about the Constitutional Convention was accepted. She had another separate um, amendment down. Like Pete Wishart at one point, she was looking to go for the votes rather than the seats. Um, and she decided to withdraw that amendment. Uh, it looks like, you know, they've had a conversation and all it takes, it might take, you know, I don't know quite what it takes particularly uh, to kind of be- begin to create that unity behind the scenes. It's something he's talked a lot about, party unity, but you can I talk mm-hmm. about something and do nothing about yeah. it. But from what I can glean from people um, at the conference, he has spent a lot of time having key conversations with people, long conversations, you know, with people, um, hearing them. Yeah. And it's extraordinary how that seems to have not been part of the previous profile. And that has done a lot in its own right simply to be heard and to get uh, just small. You might say really too small, perhaps for some of the women who left the SNP, but a small gesture of beginning to get women's rights back onto the agenda. That's what I hear when I hear that as well uh, as just being a very sensible move. So there's 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 plenty of bits in there. I mean, obviously, there's much more spending going to be happening on the health service. There'll be much more spending 500 million quid to anchor a new wind energy supply chain. Yes, Um So there's, there's, you know, there's all sorts of interesting stuff there. And that coming back to that one, which, again, I wish I was, well, no, I don't wish I was more of a banking person that understood these things because, you know, I wouldn't be me if I did. (laughs) But, um, you know, going out to the international bond market to create our own capital in our own right and to create the first bond, the first bond ever created, the Scottish national bond, will be a bond for affordable housing. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it was just great. Now all, you know, my my actual heart would have exploded, and I might have even find myself going to the SNP website, looking at the membership thing, if he'd actually also said, and district heating. District You're heating. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. how, did, how did I know you were going to
2: say that?
0: Oh God! There you go, folks. I know. District yeah, heating, yes.
1: bingo. bingo
0: you know, bullshit, bingo, you can tick your box, yeah. district heating, yeah. Um, and believe me, I did actually bang that uh, drum quite often in the events that I was speaking at. But still, you know, that, and that's the point, you know, there's wee quibbles you could have. There's a wee quibble, the council tax will be frozen next year. Yeah. That's, that's the headline in a lot of places. It's yeah. got Big Whoops. Now, that is great. The only thing, and I mean, maybe I've just kind of got this wrong a little bit, but council tax is for councils to set. Mm. Now, you know, if it's it's a measure of how unlocal everything is in Scotland that a national leader can decide that there will not be a rise in the taxes levied by another tier of government. And I appreciate people will go, look, shut up. You know, I mean, it's like. He's, You know, they've basically given COSLA or the the local authorities must have been given a bung financially to say to them, look, you don't need to. Here's an inflation, you know, an inflation Mm. index bung so that you don't really need to be raising more. Although, again, that's opening a massive discussion up because uh, councils will, I think, quite rightly say they have been the ones starved of, of funding over the last five, maybe 10 years, actually. So, it still says something about the way Scotland operates, that um, a, a, a first minister can make an announcement about about what local government will or will not do next year. Mm-hmm. And as I always remember Andy Whiteman saying when we went around and did kind of talks, um, he would always point out, I and mean, this is a sign of how much we've all changed in our various positions, that Angela Merkel at the time, the leader of Germany, was the most powerful woman in Europe, and she could not compel a local council in Germany to do anything.
2: Right.
0: Because that's how normal, normally yeah, normal. separated yeah. out councils are not dictated to by central government. But still, that is a kind of, you know, that's a quibble just to prove that, you know, we're still still here at this end. You, you had some quibbles? Uh, no, not, not, not really. That choice do not come Oh
1: yet. Yeah. Uh, uh, is it the silly one?
0: the silly one yeah
1: <laughs> yeah well i would have thought that the structural about organizationally i would have put a table beside him so he didn't have to juke down behind the behind <laughs> the, the podium every time he wanted to take a drink because you know that somebody's going to pick that up and use it as a mean and use it as a gift you know down and up down and up and they'll they'll, they'll do it you know you know what's coming so i mean yeah that 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 would have that would have been it for me because uh that was that was well, my wee quibble. You,
0: I had a little quibble, a wee silly quibble as well, which is I thought when he was doing I could see that he was he was reading auto cue at points because when he looked at whatever the central one was, his eye line was just a bit too high. There we are. There's the little. I know but this, <laughs> I know, this I know. is like I feel a tribute to my mother who never watched anything I did without commenting on my hair being out of place. So, you know, <laughs> the thing is, people do absolutely spot little things like that. But on the other hand, I mean, there was a point at the end where um, uh, his 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 wife came, uh came on the podium, uh, Nadia El Nakla. Now, I missed this at the beginning because I was busy trying to do the right thing and take a park and blink and ride bus into the conference. uh, Having been reassured by a website that there was a bus every 10 minutes, got finally to this blinking park and ride. And there was one car, you know, in a a desert of, of kind of spaces and quite evidently nothing whatsoever happening on that front. So I basically screwed up getting there on time. She was the absolute talk of the conference for practically the whole of Sunday because she came up and did this incredible speech from the heart um, talking really about, you know, the UK enabling Israel uh, with the kind of uh, comments that it's being made. Now, when you bear in mind how guarded and scared of his own shadow Keir Starmer has become so that A man who, just as you say, was a human rights lawyer can end up saying something that could arguably be construed as 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 promoting a war crime. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got basically uh, this woman who has never been on stage like this before and is in the middle of a fairly traumatic you know, situation. But she came up and, you know, she obviously hadn't been, don't say this, don't say that. You can't, you know, don't say anything hostile to Israel in case it makes us look like we're supporters of Hamas, yes. which is just the way everything's working at the moment. You know, she came up and she said her piece, you know, properly. Um, and and i think people were just quite sort of really quite blown away by her and when she came up at the end there she came up right at the end when if again, if you look at um, you know, when, when Hamza was leaving the stage and he was down, giving people really big hugs in the front row, actually. And you could see the photographers going, right, that's okay. You've hugged five people. Now, come on, we need to get a <laughs> photograph. There's somebody, a photographer on his shoulder pulling him, you know, to try and get him away from her. And then he'd see somebody else he knew and he dived into that crowd, then another two women, then a wee laddie and whatever. It's all it was all good stuff. Back up onto the stage, and Nadia, his wife, came came up. And I thought, actually, you know, she looked a bit awkward, like a, a real human would, you know. But actually, you know, they they had a they, they kind of hugged each other, and it, it just contrasted to me so hugely to that utterly staged thing that Rishi oh, yeah. and his wife did. Exactly you know?
1: what was going through my head. Yeah. yeah.
0: You know, so yes, I've got to say, every which way, I, I am actually quite glad, in a way, that I wasn't really at the conference still. Uh, because I've got to say I was crying at the end of that, because so many things were said that I I didn't realise how much I was waiting to hear someone say yeah. until they said it. And I didn't realise how much I have missed somebody just, you know, looking straight into the camera and saying, you know, a vote for, for the SNP is a vote for independence and all the different kind of ways he was able to to r- raise raise up issues that absolutely, totally on these questions about about kind of solidarity with <clears throat> all residents in Scotland, with all citizens of Scotland. He does that with such emotion and sincerity that I almost believe in politicians again. And it's, you know <laughs> that really yeah. is some going. And okay, there will be people. I know there are people because I've met them. For the last six months, I've been tutoring around Scotland, doing stuff with the book. And I've heard, um, you know, vituperative (laughs) comments about the SNP, not so much about Humza actually. And that's maybe been the point that people didn't know him enough to think that he could compensate for what they perceived to be the hurt done by the previous administration and the Burakh. Yeah. And so I suppose it's a bit like there's a sort of set of scales in people's minds now of the different kind of things going on. And just I would think after that uh, speech and contribution, there is now another weight in the scales, compensating some of it at least, not all of it, and not wiping it out. But you've got to say I definitely got the feeling at that conference that people were were perky and had, especially after the the nature of that independence debate, and um, they felt that it had been done well and and that everyone had been respectful and listened. Um, you know, so I, I think that's been a very good conference and has kind of created something, a space.
1: Well, I, I, I sincerely hope so. And I thought it was incredible I to say stepping back from the emotion of it and the, the message of it was I thought it was incredibly well constructed. Um, and again, talking to party and talking to 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 the public, you know, and. The, the the way he focused uh, at right at the end and saying that uh, the, the party is the custodian the custodian of the the chance of Scotland becoming an independent nation and again the very very powerful statement of why not Scotland why not Scotland and again the the standing ovation that came from that uh, just as a. I I've got to I've got to say as a as a as a as an aside was the fact that we're talking about uh the, the issues that the that be, be within the SNP, particularly to do with women's rights and, and trans rights, that, that the, the defection that took place, which again has been framed along with the other guy in West Hamilton by election as oh the SNP's an absolute crisis, The defection of Lisa Cameron, Dr. Lisa Cameron to the Conservatives and as somebody who was an ex-unite. I may even still be a Unite Trade Union official. I thought that was really bizarre. But I thought that also that the, the, the the timeline of it was where she went from being someone who fully supported Scottish independence and was quite happy be, being within a progressive social democratic party on September the 23rd, where she said she would resign and have a, a by-election, you know, if uh, she was not selected, to I think 19 days later, jumping ship and joining the Conservatives. You know, the the day before the result of the uh, of the, the the constituency ballot on who would be going forward as the SNP candidate. So yeah, um, yes, Ms. Cameron, yeah. I think you, you doth protest too much.
0: Yes, and I, again, without anybody getting into the ins and outs of what they know about Lisa Cameron, I think a lot of people would just look look at that and just think, you know, that is actually beyond weird. I mean, and again, it was weird a a bad, I think, reflection on the BBC that somehow, as many people pointed out, BBC Scotland went to the constituency and just seemed to bump into a lot of people who for whom Lisa Cameron had done something, which is fine. Mm. You know, she will have done. She's an MP with a constituency office. But, you know, I mean, again, the national and people will say, well, you know, surprise, surprise, they went, managed to go and find people who were just apoplectic with rage. That they were actually represented by a conservative, and um, you know, I, I think there was there was there was a there was a fringe event that I was in yesterday organised by the Institute of Government, the Institute for Government, and it was looking at the constitution of an independent Scotland. Uh, very well chaired, actually, by Jill Rutter, who is the, you know, people might think you've seen her on the telly <clears throat> from the Institute for Government. Anyway, mm-hmm. it had one, it had a couple of people there who obviously had their sort of UK heads on. And were occasionally talking about stuff. You know, one one guy talked about the dangers of having a repeating a vicious and divisive referendum. And of course, you thought, son, you're just not looking at the room you're in here. Yeah. And people were just going, I mean, vicious. What? And he said, no, no, I wasn't talking about 2014. I was talking about 2016. And they said, honest to God, vicious in Scotland? The, you yeah. know, the European reference, y- y- it just wasn't. And actually, no. I had to kind of say this. In fact, I was saying this actually about the entire proposition because people were, the, 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 the kind of tilt, if you like, of the event was, you know, what would the Scottish government take or what would the Scottish constitution take for it, you know, adapt from the British system? I had to actually say, I'm sorry if this sounds offensive to you and everything, and I can see the amount of energy you put (laughs) into these (laughs) questions and you seem very perky and, you know, Mm -hmm. committed. We will take nothing from Britain, (laughs) nothing, because there is nothing really written down for one thing. And because the customs and all the rest of it support a system predicated on parliamentary, not popular sovereignty, you can have your thing every country the scots have gone to and contributed to their constitutions whether from new zealand to america have ditched every aspect of westminster and your unwritten constitution so just take it away because we have got other better parallels that we could be drawing on and you know that's the size of it and in a way a lot of these kind of narratives that are created about the lisa cameron my god you know it's all going pete tong now well, you know, I think a lot of people will look at that and think, I don't know, that woman just doesn't sound like she's really on a totally even keel. Mm. There is a yeah. the charitable end of thinking. Yeah. And at the other end of thinking, the absolute loathing that exists um, in, in that constituency for conservatives It's for her to to do that to people, you know. I mean, I can remember a long, long time ago before Margaret Thatcher, when she was still alive, I was doing a a series for Radio Scotland about, I can't remember, you know, just big moments in politics. And had gone actually to near Ravenscraig to just get a sample of what Mm. people still felt about Margaret Thatcher all those years later, which was maybe, I don't know, you know, maybe 20 years after Ravenscraig was basically pulled down. Um, and I can remember going in and just went into a pub and went up to a guy who was sitting in the corner and said to him, um, I'm just kind of i co- I'm just coming around, just trying to get people's attitudes now to Margaret Thatcher. And his eyes lit up and he said, Is she dead? <laughs> and, I mean, you know, that's yeah. I mean I'm sorry, that's not very charitable to anybody. But. but that's the strength of feeling about these things, and that's that constituency I think, or very nearby. It's kind of like, you, you know, you just can't jump across. That's like, you know, an utter political chasm that has been louped there. And just you can you can look at how it just didn't seem at all in her thinking just beforehand. That's fine. But even if she'd been presaging this with remarks for the last 400 years, the fact of suddenly becoming a conservative, you know, constituency. Really, you know. Yeah. It's like it's not just and this is what I don't think English based people kind of quite realise is that, you know, we haven't had the shift where uh, working class constituencies have just moved, co- you know, conservative or, you know, we, we haven't had a blue wall or a red wall. I can never remember which walls they are. <laughs> um, people have roughly stuck with social democratic parties, whether that's been Labour or now the SNP, and we've just got a different politics. So just take your frameworks, take your narratives and apply them to where they come from in your head. And actually, most of them are not the reality of where Scotland has ever been. And I quite get that actually, to be fair, that the the SNP has had a narrative of invincibility for a very long time. And in a way... An undeserved reputation for that. You know, at lots of points where it where it got 56 out of 59 MPs, for example, it didn't get 90% of the vote. So you know that's true. But now we've got another narrative that the the SNP is mortally wounded, and that's not true either. Yeah. You know. So. Really, that's what will get driven, though. You can see everybody loving this one the same way as actually there's a strange period where they quite love the kind of the SNP. You can whack them out of the heat like some blue wasp and they're back, you know, <laughs> buzzing around your head before you know what's happened. That one, people almost seemed quite like that because it seemed to frisk up a boring political scene. Now they quite like, you know, that, ah, well, they've had their moment in the sun. Everything's changed. There's a guy in. The fabulous nickel is gone. The foo-foo dust is over. You know, OK, it's a bit of a puzzle. The independence vote. hanging going up. to up politics. Yes, but just give them a little bit of time. With no proper vehicle, that independence vote will go. No, it won't, actually. Yeah. And really... This does at least it gives me a little sort of sense for optimism, heavily caveated by the knowledge that I have not seen, for example, this idea that there's going to be a campaign uh, set up with the rest of the Yes movement and a you know a Scotland-wide independence campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I don't doubt for a second Tony Giuliano's you know bona fides in that one. I mean, he I'm sure he absolutely that's what he wants and that's what he wants to see. I don't know that the SNP knows how to do campaigns mm. other outside an election. I've said this before, but there's a business of creating excitement. And that is not about just more leaflets. Yeah. Uh, now, I don't know because Hamza Yusuf seems to actually have an, enough emotional intelligence to understand some of this. He's, he's managed to create some excitement himself, really, in the way that he's presenting ideas. So maybe he's got this But there needs to be a hell of a lot more stuff happening to create excitement around a a campaign than just anything. Digital print based assets, you know, fine, that's great. And actually, if they got off their mark and blew and put Hamza's speech up quickly, that would be a a Mm. first. And if they have done that, good people, you'll know because it will be accompanying the notes to this podcast.
1: (laughs) Um, Well, yeah. The other thing about it was they say, I've got my other wee quibble here. The SNP is going to set up it. A rebuttal unit, is that on top of the rebuttal unit that disappeared on Twitter for that we they used to give updates on that there's nothing being done. But anyway, that's good that the rebuttal unit's gone up. And the other thing that went through my head when you were talking about the Constitution and what could we take from the the grand UK unwritten constitution? Well I do note that the fact that uh, that great reform to the Constitution the Labour Party has been promising us for well I think about at least at least a century, which is the uh, abolition of the House of, of Lords. And uh, it was going to be replaced by yeah replaced Right. The Senate of the nations and regions. Ah, well, you know that's not going, going to be in our first term. Yeah, there you go. Care, care, care. You're going to get a second one. Yeah, that's been that can's been kicked down the road with with there as well. So that's it. Well, but talking bit yeah.
0: Well, before we herple on, um, the the other thing that is the constitutional convention idea because um, mm. I, I was still trying to find out when that kind of begins to happen and quite what the idea behind it is, because people were okaying a lot of things that, you know, certainly do with a bit, you know, a bit more fleshing out. Um, I mean, it strikes me that it's probably it probably the case that fitting it into the strategy that they've got, um, you would want to have the explicit mandate of if we get this number of votes, which is the same winning definition as every other party in the UK at a UK election, we will treat that as a mandate to do the following things and we've just heard from tommy the range of things they would want which is basically independence referendum and powers over stuff to get mm-hmm. some money in fast to do some mitigating of the crap um but the other thing would be that would give you the mandate to say that you want to set up a constitutional uh, convention which would probably have enough you know it won't have of course as a lot of unionists will never want to have anything to do with it at all of course that's true um, but there's a lot of people kind of in the middle
2: mm-hmm. who
0: could be more convinced as if there was some framing by a democratic process, namely an election. So it might be people like the Scottish TUC, for example, yeah. whose, whose position is that they support the idea of a second independence referendum, though obviously though not independence. Now those people that would be they would be pretty vital to be on board with a constitutional convention, and they may not feel that that uh, they that the, the mandate is there to set it up that kind of covers them in a way because clearly a lot of their members, perhaps mm-hmm. still the majority, will be unionists. So they'll get pelters and they need a framing. They need a protection by a democratic process, which union unions are very strongly adhe- adhering to, um, to let them get involved. So I guess that that's the point at which it happens. And perhaps there's a situation where um, once that's occurred, mps because that's framing in here it's uh, this constitutional convention would be constituted by the mps elected to westminster msps and representatives of, Civics of scotland i know we could talk about the civic scotland bit but the mps bit i mean that could be that mps for example the cohort elected come back and sit in the scottish constitutional mm-hmm. Con- convention on mondays for example um so there's a day maybe more a week that's devoted to being part of that dimension as part of their jobs as MPs. And that's not abstentionism. That's not as exciting potentially as you know saying that you're not going to take your seats. Clearly, that's not what anybody's looking for. And that was kind of cu- a couple of people addressed that in their conference speeches. Uh, and just said, you know, as long as we're in this UK dimension, we we feel we can't just leave that, you know, the Westminster. And a lot of people will say that's feeble. But Here's potentially something that gives a kind of, you know, a a dual mandate almost or a a dual presence, Uh a dual dual institutional role to MPs after the next election, which might be another reason for people wanting to, you know, vote for independence. And I, I guess that was also something just to come back to Hamza's speech that, you know, he was trying to address a lot of what the grumbles are. And so, you know, the grumble that basically there's not there's no work going on behind the scenes to set up the institutions uh, that would yes. ca- carry us on to independence. I mean, again, that was I thought that was pretty well dealt with in that <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of holes in it. And people who are, you know, have got a better institutional grasp than myself would, would doubtless look at it and say, yeah, but what about this? What about that? But, you know, a lot of the framing of what we're of what is being put together, particularly that question of beginning to. You know go out to the international bond market and to put your head over the parapet now it makes me want to know more about why have we not done this already i'm sure that this will be a question asked if it's possible for scotland to go to the bond markets why have we not been doing it to raise money i'd imagine there was a perception or advice perhaps that this was something that we in a devolved administration couldn't do so if that is basically you know a, a kind of decision to, to, to test that out uh, and to take on the naysayers within government, perhaps, then blooming well done and about time. And that creates an extra dimension to stuff to say we're now beginning to operate like we're on the roll up to the yeah. kind of control that we want to have
1: yeah because that was that was the thing was that he talked about the social security system he talked about the progressive taxation system he talked about all those other elements that are the foundations of a new state and then to take it forward again to talk about the uh going on the bond market and saying that's what we're going to do. But again, it, it did come back. And I was I, I was struck again, just how much I mean, the uh, the Common Wheel paper had been read in, in terms of the three the three options that uh, Robin McCapin and Common Wheel talked about in terms of the approach. And I thought again i thought that that again that just the two things are just happening simultaneously and, and bright people you know within the snp and bright people, commonwealth just come up with the same the same i the same ideas well,
0: actually in in one of the fr- i can't remember which fringe meeting i was in maybe it was one about europe i think uh, I th- no it was actually joanna had mentioned it in the one i was at the institute of government about the constitution uh, a commonwealth document was mentioned twice by joanna mm-hmm. and actually that is you see there are yeah you know, yeah there's definitely still difficulties with a lot of policy framing. I mean, so on that one about the constitution, which I think Hamza did actually mention, you know, that there's a constitution on the go um, and that it will be. Now, this was uh, this was the um, Jamie Hepburn, who's the independence oh, minister, yeah. was in the event. And so he was talking about that, you know, this this would be widely consulted upon. Now, I, I don't know yeah. if Red Hayes descended at that point for yeah. me, because it's like... You know, consultation is a definition of keeping the power. It's another variation of that one about devolution, you know, that yeah. basically devolving power, power devolved is power retained. Well, you know, power consulted or proposals consulted upon are proposals, you know, basically maintained by mm-hmm. the power is entirely maintained by the person who decides whether or not to hear those, you know, how to frame the questions, whether how long to let people have, you know, all of that. It's completely different, completely different from having a process where the entire power to frame a constitution is in the hands of the people of Scotland, randomly selected the same way the Irish Citizens Assemblies mm-hmm. were. And that should have been the model for the interim constitution as well. So uh, I rattled on about that quite Considerably, and I think actually annoyed Jamie Hepburn quite a lot because I think I probably was actually slightly overstepping my mark as just another panelist at one point, but I was battering <laughs> away at him to say, you know, "What kind of consultation? And can you just accept that consultation is is an is essentially a disempowering thing?" Yeah. Um, well, I'm, so yeah, I've been you know, subjected tough... to
1: consultation over many years as a as a as a as a member of staff in FE colleges, and that's uh, yeah we've decided what we're going to do. Well, well, you guys can have what the heck you think about it. And we're still going to go ahead and do what we originally planned to do. And I was trying
0: to make a couple of points, you know, within that context to say, for example, you know, let's just take this question of the lack of local power in Scotland. And again, a room of intelligent, switched on motivated people. Seem shocked to hear, and I think, am I just going to have to keep repeating this? Oh. sentence to the end of time that the average council in Scotland is 175,000 people. The average in the EU is 10,000 people, and there are no, there is no other country in the world with larger council units than Scotland except Korea. Yeah. Now, when you then start talking about, you know, a constitution, if you don't really get in and have a proper limbering up discussion about what local means in any way. And, for example, just to go back to the previous thing about the the statement about council tax being frozen, um, you know, we will continue to have a Scottish saltire draped mini-me version of Mm top-down Britain for an unnecessarily long time until we start to look at the idea that the lack of genuine local power is utterly weird and betrays a total lack of confidence, basically, in in the public, you know. So that was one which people seem to get pretty big style. And the other one is land, you know, the two biggies. Mm -hmm. The Icelanders, uh, the reason that the Icelandic source constitution has been really kind of thwarted, two reasons. One is they ju- chose not to have politicians be part of it, which gave it a certain, you know, democratic kind of purity if you like but also meant these guys had no skin in the game so of course once it was finished none of them had had yeah. uh, mental ownership of it so uh, they just decided to kind of put it in the corner and one of the reasons was because the the, the constitution gave the, the rights legal rights to the land now people will think that that's bizarre but what it does is it places in there um a possible future set of arguments that lawyers can have about, for example, whether the land would want to have yet another Mm -hmm. hydro dam put upon it to basically fund the profits of Alcoa, the aluminum company. And the point of a lot of these things, in fact, Joanna made, I thought, a very good point there as well, where Hamza had mentioned that the constitution would also have drafted in it a commitment to, I think it was free uh, healthcare at point of need or whatever. And I mean, much as everybody kind of agrees on that, Joanna was, I think, herself sort of saying in that meeting that it's better to have a, a kind of more abstract co- commitment because you'll end up, you know, you can end up tying yourselves in knots to whether or not you've actually provided, you know, if you're using anything in the. She didn't mention, go on to mention this example, but if you're using anything within the in the private sector. I mean, I suppose that's still free to the punter at point of, of need. But most constitutions, there are one, Jamie mentioned there was one example, maybe it was the Germans or the Belgians, who actually do have precisely that phrase in it. But that's exactly what you would want to have argued out. You know, yes. what is and the phrase that I came to mind for me, based on listening to the Irish and the Icelanders, is that you want um the, the experts on tap, not on top. Yeah. yeah. Now that's still to be had, that discussion, and actually it's not going to be had, because, you know, it's done, as an interim constitution. All this sort of question of the involvement of the public of the public in any kind of way in that is not that's not going anywhere quite evidently from that event. Um and we'll get, however, we'll get a shout, you know, the idea is the interim constitution is in place. And uh, then it goes into a proper, again, consultative process. Just don't even use that mm-hmm. word and actually learn what the difference is. You know, consult- consultative processes are just that's not good enough. You know, these days it's just not good enough. And the other we worry is that, you know, the Icelanders had an interim constitution. They took the, the old one from Denmark, stroked out Denmark, put in Iceland in 1944 And uh, 70 years later, that's (laughs) why they're revising it, because you think you're going to get around to it. And actually, the chap that was, you know, taking a bit of stick for his um, vicious and divisive IndyRev, he actually said, yeah, there's examples of that all over the world where interim constitutions end up being permanent. So it was a very good debate, actually, however. And again, I, I hope there's some... That it was actually recorded, so some of that will come up on the Institute for Government's website, which I will tweet and if anyone's interested, they can see the bits.
1: I just as I was listening to you there, Leslie, about the, the criticisms being levelled at the SNP there. This is for you, George Fuchs. Uh, Lord Fuchs of uh, Baron Fuchs of Cumber, who listens to this podcast apparently and is and and follows you on, on Twitter. Indeed Leslie, he does. Yeah, and he's saying uh, this the Leslie Rook is obviously not a member of the SNP. Well, listen to this, George. <laughs> Leslie is not, has not, and never <laughs> will be a member of the SNP. So again, I hope that I hope that came out loud and clear. But it was the I've got to, to to talk about this. This has been a a substantial episode, but I cannot let a couple of things go past. Chain of Freedom. Yes. W- which which seemed a very jolly, joyous, um, an exciting event. Yes,
0: it absolutely was. Um, I mean, I think the problem is, and I did quite say this to the organisers, and this is what Time for Scotland, the wee group that did the Supreme Court verdict rally, or, you know, our thing is all about, is visibility. Yeah. Because you can do stuff and have, I don't know how many tens of thousands pitched up around the place. I do know that my wee section 6D, which was at Bonnie Bridge, um, I, it had people all the way along the canal banks as far as I could see in both directions, which is, you know, was pretty good. Uh, what would happen beyond that, Dina Ken? Um, it, it was an odd thing in that it's a bit like trying to do Hogmanay with Natalie. Nay watch and nay <laughs> yeah. bells happening When's on the, on the yeah. Clyde or anything like that because you're sort yeah. of like right has it happened yet you know are we holding yeah. our hands now and then once you've held your hands how long are you holding your hands for <laughs>
1: it was well Scotland not not half of, not half a long
0: yeah <laughs> well no actually it was quite good really because a lot of people are you know so there was and there was a bit of singing although again I now feel everyone needs to go and just learn some songs you know because we, we, we would tend to get through about one verse and then everybody would fall away you know but still you know, people pitched up. It was very, very cheery. And the amount of um, Stuart Kerr-Brown from Yes West, West Lothian did a lovely film, uh, which was basically just looking at everyone, hugging each other. And um, it's just one of those things that's also struck me very strongly from the end of Humza's speech. You, you know, it, it, this is if you're talking about sort of compassion and this idea of people, OK, I know we need, you know, we need to win votes from other folk, but the way that you behave with your own folk basically really matters very much. And just the warmth and affection there was for one another, almost because we were doing something slightly ludicrous (laughs) at the behest of just two women from Inverness, not anything more official, not anything properly funded. And I know a lot of people will just, you know, snort with, well, I never heard about it properly and dismiss that entire effort, which I find heartbreaking, actually, and almost callous. Yep, it could have done with a lot better publicity, although The National gave it big licks every day last week. But, you know, if any of you've tried to get publicity when you start off from just being two people with a good idea, once you've tried that, knocked your pan in, and you've managed to get tens of thousands of people moving all over Scotland then criticize and actually i <laughs> had this marvelous moment of kind of um un- unleashing a, a steel unicorn that had been yes. built by duncan from uh I've, i never got duncan's surname actually but uh he comes from loch Inver in ascent and um he, he just very modestly said oh i'll just knock this up in a couple of months from bits in my shed and there's this is gleaming beautifully paneled you know and, and c- completely solidly put together uh horse-like unicorn um, on its own little trolley that he'd actually borrowed someone's trailer. I mean, that'll have been a sight on a single track road coming down (laughs) through the highlands, you know, um, and brought this down with Marianne down to section 60 of the thing at Bonnie Bridge, rolled it off. And it's it's, it's just wee things at the end. It's quite a, a hefty thing. There's bits where you had to go over wee boggy bits of ground to get to it they got they got it there so i got the bolt cutters out and sort of liberated it i didn't realize this actually about the unicorn um but having looked at it um apparently it did it did was thought to have existed as an animal forty thousand years ago um and it was uh in the fifth century i was it the 15th century rather um monarchs around europe began to pick emblems uh you know for for their, uh, for their purposes, and there were some strange animals chosen. the ki- the French king chose a porcupine, you know, so there was some odd ones going on. Um, I, I'll refrain from saying what I was thinking. Yes, I we, yes. <laughs> so James the chose a unicorn, um, and and the 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 heraldic use of it, um, in Scotland has got the unicorn chained, and it's partly an expression of the extraordinary power thought to to, to you know, the unicorn was thought to have. As a magical being. Um, now, of course, you know, you can just turn your nose up, the whole thing of a magical being, I, you know, this will be for the bairns and it's all a load of nonsense. That's our heraldic symbol. That's what we have in our past. And magical thinking is just another way of talking about visualization, imagination, or the future, or will. It's a manifestation of will. And the idea that it it can be freed. It's a lovely one. So thank you to Duncan and Marianne for giving me that opportunity. I certainly got something out of it. And uh, um, I also love the idea that two women can think that they can manage to summon a whole lot of people just through an idea and their own energy. So uh, well done to Wilma Bowie and Judith Reed. Nice one. And next time, we just have to try and work harder on this question of publicity, although I think you'll actually see now some lovely films with drone footage coming out of what happened along those canals. And of course, there'll have been spaces. I mean, yeah, yeah. And of course, there'll have been spaces in the SNP conference Mm. and the Tories and other people who are even Labour, whose last conference that I went to had about 200 people in it that's fine you know you not knock, knock yourselves out with just spotting the little chinks in the in the armor if you like but you know quite evidently what there is is just still people who are on the march
1: and i can't think of a better way to end this week's podcast on that great note that two women can actually organize an event that can bring together the people of Scotland and think about the future and think about the nation that we can be. And we'll see you next week, James.